Do you know everything going on in your complex cloud environment? Well, Splunk Observability Cloud works in any deployment to help you find problems faster, make your customers happier, and lower MTTR. Get a free trial at splunk.it slash SOPodcast. That's S-P-L-K dot I-T slash SOPodcast. Head on over, let them know we sent you. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow Podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my wonderful crew of co-hosts, Cassie Williams and Seor Ford. Hi, y'all. Hi. Hello. So today we are going to be chatting a little bit about environments as a service. In my time here at Stack Overflow, there has been a lot of learning about microservices and containers and staging environments. Is this something you two feel familiar with, both as a concept and maybe as a pain <laughs> a pain point? I see it. I see you breaking a small smile there, Cassie. <laughs> Very familiar. Yeah. Love hearing about things that make things better. Okay. We'll leave it Sierra, you're always up for solving a few problems for developers <laughs> out there, right? Yeah, I know. I think by now listeners will know that my whole thing is as long anything that makes a developer's job easier is okay with me. So Okay, great. <laughs> All right. So then without further ado, we'd like to welcome uh Tommy McClung, who's a CEO and co founder at Release Hub to the Stack Overflow Podcast. Hi, Tommy. Hi, everybody. Nice to meet you. So the first thing I always do is just ask folks to, you know, date themselves to the degree that they're comfortable. How'd you get into the world of software development and technology and, and walk us through a little bit of what brought you to the position you're in now? Well, this is definitely going to date me. So um, <laughs> let's go. I started my career as a firmware engineer uh, building blade servers back in the early 2000s. So oh, dang. this is before the cloud, um, before VMs, and the only real way that you could uh, get a lot of horsepower in compute was to rack as many servers into a rack as you possibly could. Right. So RLX uh, built a 3U server that you could put 24 blades in, and I wrote a lot of the systems management software for that company. Uh, ultimately, that company was bought by Hewlett Packard. But that systems management idea has stuck with me from my whole career because it was my first foray into making developers' lives easier. And back then, to get a machine to do what you wanted, uh, it was really difficult. So that was how I got started. And I actually ended up being a sales engineer for them after I was a firmware engineer, which is a really cool job where you travel around the country and talk to customers about technology. I, I really enjoyed that. But I got the bug for entrepreneurship uh, from that startup um, mm. and started a couple of other companies along the way. Uh, and every time uh, we started companies, I say we because I've been with the same co-founders for 20 plus years now. Uh, we always That's build everything. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we always build everything ourselves at the beginning. So the three of us go in a room and we hack on stuff uh, for months until we feel like we've got something good and we put it in front of users. And I've done everything from an automotive marketplace startup to a parental control startup to a blade server startup and now uh, <laughs> environments as a service. And it's kind of a long meandering story about how I got to um, environments as a service. But I think the theme of my career has always been as an engineer first, when you build a company, making your developers productive 
saves you a lot of money. Um, and because the three of us have always been engineering oriented, we kind of have done that from the beginning to start with. And the last startup that we had was a company by the name of CarWoo that was an automotive marketplace that was acquired by TrueCar. And I ended up coming into that to run a product. The team that came in brought, uh, built a, a product within like three months. And then we tried to deploy it into the ecosystem of a nearly public company at the time. And it was incredibly difficult, which was the juxtaposition of being at a startup where you move really quick. It was really difficult to get technology out into the world there. And so I guess I was the squeaky wheel um, and complained about it a lot. Uh, <laughs> and over the course of a few years, I ended up running uh, the technology team as the CTO there. And environments were a really, really big challenge at this company. Um, you know, they had 300-ish product and technology people. Uh, they had one or two staging environments for about 300 technologists, which there's a lot of bottlenecks that occur when, when yeah. <laughs> 300 people are trying to share a few environments. And this was still in a physical data center. They hadn't yet moved to the cloud. And environments were critical there because obviously just the test code and things, they needed it. But they also had about 400 partners that needed to test integrations with them as well. And so there were environments for partners and environments were this constant theme of frustration and nobody ever had enough of them. And uh, I had seen the pain firsthand trying to build a product there, and deliver it, and it was really difficult. So I ended up leading an effort to rebuild the technology stack there as the CTO and an environment management platform was needed. And when we looked in the market to buy something, there really wasn't anything at the time. This is like 2016 or so. You know, Docker was still having a lot of DNS issues and it was challenging to use and containerization was just starting to come on board. Kubernetes wasn't really even a thing at the time. A lot of stuff had to be done in AWS, you know, through the console. There wasn't Terraform at the level that it is today. So after about 12 months, we had built a homegrown management environment management system. And my founders and I looked at each other and said, man, if there was a product in the market that did this, I bet you it would sell. <laughs> so, you know, we talked to folks along the way and kept hearing the same theme uh, from engineering leaders wherever we went that, yeah, environments are difficult. Like, um, and if if there was a product that existed, we'd, we'd probably buy it. So my co-founders and I started a release in, in 2019, right before the pandemic. And, you know, the goal of the company is, you know, environments are a bottleneck, but ideas getting to the world is always harder than it needs to be. And so the mission of the company is to get ideas to the world faster. Um, and we're starting with the big bottlenecks in development and environments are a big part of that. So that's kind of a long meandering story. Uh, I think I've dated myself well enough now talking about blade servers and, uh, <laughs> you know, racking and stacking servers. So, um, but it's always been near and dear to me, you know, from the beginning, you know, I'm a developer at heart and, uh, like Cassidy said, anything we can do to make developers' lives better um, is is what I'm all about. That is all so cool. And I think my favorite part of that is the fact that you've worked with the same team of people for so long. I think that really, that's a testament to not only how well you work together, but how well you communicate and how much you can build. Mm. For yeah, good or bad. Point, yeah, Actually, yeah. Yeah, for better of, or for worse. Yeah, there's a period of time, maybe like two years where David Giffen, one of our founders, 
uh, maybe it was four years in the middle where he left and went to Etsy. And it's really interesting because his time at Etsy was pretty formative in the world of DevOps. You know, they Mm -hmm. were, if you go back and look at a lot of their blog posts, they were really pushing continuous integration and continuous deployment. And David was there, I think he was engineer number eight at, at Etsy. And so a lot of the, you know, the productivity gains that you could get by having great environments and doing CICD, he was at the very beginning of this movement of DevOps. Um, I don't even think they called it DevOps at the time. And then he rejoined Eric and I about three years later uh, at the automotive startup. So there was a little bit of a, a departure for David, but it was really useful for what we're doing because he, he you know, learned the, uh, by doing it at Etsy. Cool. You, yeah, you mentioned you have this trio of co-founders. How did y'all meet? And, and when you sit down in a room to hack something out, is there like, do you each have a traditional role? You do work on different parts of the puzzle or does it all get mixed up? Well, we all met at that Blade server startup, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> actually, I met Eric. And we both went to college together, um, but we didn't really know each other until college was over. Um, and then we both ended up working at RLX and we met David, who was a PHP systems management guru at the time. This was when PHP was just starting too. So that's even more of dating us. You know, I think when we build something, we naturally have like strengths and weaknesses. David is kind of the evil genius, you know, mad scientist that will go (laughs) hack on something and figure it out, like blaze the trail and like any hard problem. Like when we started release, we didn't know anything about Kubernetes. And, And we were like, man, Kubernetes could probably be pretty useful for this. So we should go figure that out. And David just put his headphones on and like learned it in six weeks, you know, he knew the ins and outs of Kubernetes and uh, he's he's just really brilliant. And Eric is a really good kind of systems thinker, uh, backend engineer. You know, he can build anything. He's a Rails guy. He's been using Rails since 2006 when Twitter started using it and couldn't make anything work because the performance <laughs> problems were huge. And I'm like, just tell me what to do and I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, and so, in one of the startups, like we built a little Windows application that had to run on, you know, any Windows machine. And it was like, hey, go figure out Visual Studio and C++. So I jumped in and figured it out. And in this startup, we didn't have a front end engineer. And I was like, ah, how hard could this be? And so I learned React and, you know, struggled through it for about two months and then got to be the uh, front end engineer. I actually wrote front end code at release for probably about a year and subsequently, the team has thrown everything I did out. They're systematically removing <laughs> every line of code that I ever wrote, which is good. And it makes me happy because I don't want to answer any questions about it. And our team is way smarter <laughs> than I am with that stuff. Uh, so they're moving everything to TypeScript and doing some really cool stuff over there now. But uh, yeah, I mean, we all kind of just fill into our lane and we just work really well. You know, we 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 know what everyone's good at and and it's really nice to work with those two guys. I actually miss... The early, the earliest six months to a year of a company when you're just hacking in a garage, you always look back at it and you're like, man, that was the best time we ever had uh, sitting on David's couch and just hacking on this problem. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, I've, I'm hearing a lot of like pivoting and filling roles that are open because someone needs to fill them, jumping headfirst into things that you may not be like an expert in. I wonder if that has presented any challenges and how you overcame them, because I think that a lot of people just in general 
But especially if you're interested in starting a company or a business or whatever the case may be, I think a lot of people, that's like a hurdle that they have a hard time getting over. It's like the idea that, oh, what if I change my mind or what if I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not an expert in this thing. What's going to happen later on down the line? So how did you kind of deal with those things, some of those issues that may come up and overcome them? Because obviously you have. Yeah, I think, I think you have to go into it with just ignorance, actually. Like, uh, <laughs> ignorance is bliss. I, it is bliss because, you know, a lot of times if you think about how big the idea you're working on is or how hard it's going to be, you won't take the first step, you know? That's so true. becoming ignorant to the challenge and just saying, well, I got to figure out React. Like, that's the next thing that I need to do to make progress on this. I can do that. Like I can go figure out React and David can go figure out Kubernetes and Eric can put a data model together that represents what we're trying to do. And, you know, we'll start iterating and it'll start to come to life. You know, I think ignorance is a really good part, a big part of it. And then the second part of it is if it works, whatever you come up with at the beginning is going to go away. So it doesn't live as long as you think it might. Like that front end code that I wrote sat around for probably six months to a year and smarter people came in and made it a lot better. So at the very beginning, all you're really trying to do is prove that you, you have something people want and they will pay for it. And if you can do that, it'll start to take a life of its own. And then smarter people will come in and clean up the mess that you made. And so the, <laughs> you don't want to try to be too perfect early on. Um, you just got to get it to work. And once you get it to work and, and a customer can see it or an investor can see it or a user can see it, all of a sudden the feedback starts to flow in and the idea goes from, hey, this is a little thing that we're thinking about to, oh, it has real purpose and meaning and somebody can use it to make their life better. And, um, and then it starts to snowball from there. So I always tend to think, well, I just got to get one person to use this. Like, let's start with one. And if I can get one, there's probably more than one out there. And then it'll, it'll just kind of go. Uh, but that getting to one is always the hardest because there's so many reasons people come up with in their mind. Well, I can't do this or I'm not smart enough or I don't know this technology. It just, it's kind of, it's, it's a falsehood. Like you really can just roll your sleeves up and make something. And there's so many tools out there right now that make it easier. I mean, it's so much different to build a startup now than it was, you know, we had to have hardware back in the early days where we were literally sending, <laughs> you know, motherboards to fabrication. And if they came back and you had a chip that was wired wrong, you were screwed for six months, you know? So now you can mess up, start over in, in the same day if you want to. So it's, it's really nice. Right, right. So you mentioned, you know, when you reached out that you wanted to talk a bit about some of the sort of roadblocks and bottlenecks that emerge, especially as you, you know, related with environments and you had that experience uh, that led to you becoming CTO at the car company. Talk to us a little bit about sort of the, maybe if you can, the specifics of the pain points there, what the tech stack was. I know you mentioned 300 people sharing one or two environments was a problem, but what did you see there? And then what have you built and in what way so that, you know, developers who are interested in trying out your tool kind of have a sense of what they're going to get their hands on and how it might work for them? Yeah, I think the tech stack, I think the easier way to answer that question is what did they not have in the tech stack? <laughs> uh, it was literally a little bit of everything, you know, lots of different languages, lots of different, you know, versions of databases, physical data centers. It was just kind of a 
sprawl of lots of different technologies across the board, which that made it difficult because if you're trying to normalize um, a process, whether it's like a development process or you know how you ship code or whatever that might be, um, if you have too many moving parts, it gets really difficult. So I think that was kind of challenge number one. And then challenge number two was, okay, now all of these different technologies converge into a QA environment, a dev environment, and a staging environment. I think if I remember right, that's that's what it was. So when you wanted to ship something, you know, you kind of had to raise your hand and say, okay, I want to ship and I want to do it on this day. And a group of people would literally go into a room and run book the next two weeks of how the deployments had to go out and all these various different pieces of technology. So they would land in one of these environments so that the developers could actually, um, you know, test it and make sure that their code worked. And the other thing, and I think this is really relevant as modern applications get complicated, is applications have gotten so complicated that you really cannot run most of them on your laptop anymore, right? You can run parts of them. You might be able to run a service on your laptop. But if you really want to run a version of said you know, product, you know, you have to have RDS databases. You have to have all of this technology to make it work. And that was definitely the case there where you couldn't run it locally. It just couldn't happen. Um, so you were dependent on these environments to do your work. I mean, simply speaking, you know, 300 engineers sharing two, three environments, like it's not going to go very fast. It just by definition, there's a lot of waiting around um, and there's a lot of rework. So you would build something and then you'd test it and you'd be like, oh, that's not right. You know, and then you'd be like, okay, I got to go fix it. And then you had to go back in the line in the queue before you could get your, you know, your change out to out to production. Um, security was a big challenge there too. You know, it's, you know, we worked with a lot of banks. We worked with a lot of partners like that, that really cared about their PII and their security. So you couldn't just like, you know, give developers access to production. There was a lot of rules around like who could get to those environments, what they could do. And every environment had a little bit different security policy, which really made it tricky. Secure, it was really secure because, you know, it would kind of gradually lock itself down as you got closer to production. But every environment was a little different. And I think that was another thing that we realized that as environments are different, it becomes tricky because if I test it on my laptop and then I go to staging and then I go to production, all of those are different. Like who knows what's going to happen when you when you launch it. So that was the, 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 the kind of like lay of the land there that, you know, really had to be solved. So fast forward to today, I think everybody's pretty familiar with the concept of in, infrastructure is code now, right? You can write your, you know, your Terraforms or your YAML files that describe your infrastructure. Your applications sit on top of your infrastructure. And so there is a layer more than just defining your infrastructure. You have to define your application, its requirements, the infrastructure that go along with it. So we talk about this as environments as code. So all the settings, services, data, configuration, infrastructure that go into getting an application to run lives within an environment and environments as code allows you to define not just your infrastructure. You might be using Terraform or Pulumi or AWS CDK to define your infrastructure, but I also need to define my services, how those services might deploy into that environment. So I can literally click a button and reproduce the environment with everything that it needs to run, including data and that. So that's what release does. It gets you to a point where you can define your environments in a template, and then you can reuse that template to spin up and down environments whenever you need. So if I'm a developer 
and I say, hey, I, I, I want to just test this feature branch, you can, with a pull request in GitHub, just do a PR and it'll automatically spin up a full stack environment, front ends, back end databases, all the infrastructure with just the branch that you're working on. It's dedicated and isolated to you. So you're not dependent on all of the you know, other developers that are changing things. You have your own standalone environment to do that. So one way to think of it is parallelized staging environments, right? Everybody can have their mm -hmm. own. You can have it whenever you want and you shut it down whenever you want. So that's the general core of the, the platform. Mm. Um, it, it runs in your AWS or GCP account. So all of the infrastructure mm. is running within your AWS or GCP account. So it's not a hosted thing. And it really just unlocks that bottlenecking problem that engineering organizations have. And you'd be surprised, like when we sell this thing, almost every engineering team is doing this at some level. They're like figuring it out, building it in-house. They've got some scripts and they've got a bunch of stuff that they've cobbled together to kind of like approximate what we do. But a lot of time and energy goes into building that stuff. And we look at that, my co-founder calls it toil, which I find it's a funny word, but it's this work that you do that isn't really value add. It's just like, you know, you have to do it to get everything you want for your users, but it doesn't really add a lot of value. And there's a lot of that that goes on in the development world. Um, you know, you're always, you know, trying to get your laptop to work and get your packages to install the right way. And there's just all of this stuff going on that, you know, if we're trying to get ideas to the world faster, if we can remove that stuff, it, it's definitely going to, it's definitely going to make that happen. Yeah. 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 I, I say this every time we like interview people who make products that make, that aren't, the same, but do this thing where they take away the busy work that like prevents people from the actually yeah. building. Yeah, the I yeah. love that word. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's like so many, you mentioned that there are like so many issues, not issues, but like parts of development that really cut off the, the ability of a developer to actually like develop real stuff. So it's cool to see this. I think this is the first time I've heard of a product that tackles this specific issue that like I know from experience and just talking to a lot of developers that it is an issue. <laughs> yeah, it, it so. definitely is tricky. Um, and, you know, you can get by for a while. Like when we were first starting, like I didn't need a dev environment, a QA environment, a staging environment. We just like yeah. had laptops and we made it work. But as you grow and right. grow and grow, you know, making it, it's expensive. You hire 300 engineers and they're sitting around trying to get NPM packages to install half the day. That's not a really good use of their time. So our vision and mission of the company is, you know, make developers lives easier so they can release ideas faster. And we just have felt this environment problem everywhere we've gone. And if we could solve that, you know, there's tons of other things that we can do, but that's, that's just a really big pain point that is common all over the place. Yeah. This is a hefty issue. Uh, it seems like it's a complex issue that a lot of people deal with. And Earlier, you mentioned like the hardest thing is the hardest milestone is like getting that first group of customers who like trust you enough to pay for your thing to like fix this problem. Yep. So what was that like? How did you do that? What is it like getting <laughs> those first like group of customers that are going to like actually, mm, you know, trust you? You know, it, it, it's it's kind of a two part answer. One is always go to your friends first. Like <laughs> there's no 
buddy that's going to trust you off the street. And roast you off the street too. Right. <laughs> and be honest with you. Like also, you know, you go talk to people, be like, oh, that's a really good idea. And then you're like, hey, will you pay me for it? And the answer is, well, no, I'm not going to pay you for it, but it's a really good idea. Uh, so we had a close uh, friend who ran about a series B startup. Um, they, you know, we actually were one of their first customers when I was at TrueCar um, for a marketing automation platform that they have. So I called them and I said, hey, we're working on this. Can we talk to your engineering team, you know, just to get feedback? And so through a bunch of conversations, they were like, hey, we'll, we'll give it a shot. So we had our first hand raiser and this was actually like before we even found it, like technically incorporated. And, you know, we just were like, can we talk to your guys and see what they say? And they lived through a lot of bumps. Let's just put it that way. Like, you know, they were a pretty big company at the time. And one thing that we learned along the way is startups, like if we were to go sell to startups exclusively, their technology stacks are a lot smaller. So you don't have to deal with as much complexity. It's like, oh, it's a Rails app or yeah. it's a Node.js app. It's straightforward. But when you go into like a company that has 30, 40, 50 engineers, the technology stack starts to get really complicated. And we really wanted to tackle that problem because that's the problem that we felt was company gets bigger. Let's go after bigger customers and see if we can solve it. And so this company was relatively bigger sized. We got them to like raise their hand and say, hey, we'll be the guinea pigs and, and work with you guys. Uh, and it, crazy enough, they paid us too, <laughs> um, even though it wasn't the perfect product. You know, They were going to try to build something in-house to do it. And they were like, well, we'll just pay you guys to do it. And if it works out, great. If not... Um, We'll, you know, we'll build it later. So that was, and they really, they like, for instance, David, I talked about worked at Etsy, worked with this guy at Etsy like 12 years ago. So they knew so each knew other really well. Specifically his pain. <laughs> right. And so they both were like, hey, we really, like they trusted us because they knew we were good engineers and said, if you could solve this for us, then great. We don't have to spend time on it. So that was, you'd be surprised, you know, if you call four or five people, there's always somebody out there that's close to you that will say, yeah, I'll right. give it a shot. You know, in part, it's like the network you've built over time, but also, you know, like you said, maybe you're trying out their product at a certain point or you've done it at another company. And so being willing to take a risk on someone and then have them return the favor. It always, like karma is a thing. I fully believe in it. Like <laughs> you, you do something good for somebody at some point, they'll do something good for you. And I, I like to believe that that's the case all over. So, you know, that was answer one is like close friend that would try it out that happened to be the CEO of a company. So we were pretty uh, fortunate to know that person. And he vouched for us and said that he'd let us do it. And then after you get your first one, you're like, all right, how do we do that again? Well, you, you probably don't have <laughs> 50 friends like that. So um, <laughs> we actually contemplated that problem a lot and said, you know what? we should apply to Y Combinator. And so I actually did Y Combinator in 2009, uh, which was early days for Y Combinator. If you don't know about YC, it's startup accelerator that a lot of companies go through to get off the ground. And in 2009, we did that program when there was about 20 companies in the program. It was really small. That was for the automotive startup. And then fast forward to uh, 2020, we said, well, if we want to get access to a lot of early stage companies, like joining Y Combinator is a really good way to get in uh, where everybody's trying to figure out this first problem. Like everybody's trying to figure out how am I going to get my first customer? So we got, we applied to YC and we got in. And then literally at the tables at dinner, David and I would wander around 
and just demo what we were doing and like convince people to give it a shot. Like it was <laughs> grassroots gorilla, but we had this advantage because there was like 250 companies that were at YC when we went through it in 2020 versus the 22 or 23 back in 2009. And that was part of the reason why we did it. We had to find a way to like get that flywheel going. And I think that got us our next 10 customers. And I mean, even if you can't go do that, you got to go where the customers are, right? Like you need to figure out like what customers could I get access to that are willing to take a, uh, a chance on me. And, and I had said this before that like we wanted to go after bigger companies, but we really knew we weren't ready for it. So we did make that decision to switch back to startups and say, okay, we can do Rails apps. We can do Node apps. We could solve those. Let's go back to that idea, solve those smaller companies and work our way up to the bigger ones. And that actually has worked really, really well for us. Like two and a half years later, we can handle pretty much any complexity of environment somebody throws at us now. And two years ago, you know, we couldn't even handle a Rails app. So, you know, <laughs> it, you, you kind of have to crawl, walk and run, especially if your idea is mm -hmm. really big and complicated. What's the smallest footprint of a customer you could work on? Go find where those people are and, you know, try to convince them. Yeah. Mm. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I want to shout out the winner of a badge. We're out of Lifeboat badges because we've been recording so many podcasts, but I will <laughs> shout out the winner of an Inquisitive badge who has asked a well-received question on 30 separate days here on Stack Overflow and maintained a positive question record. So thanks for coming here and being curious. L. Samuels, helping to spread some knowledge around the community. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow with your questions or suggestions. Or if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. My name is Tiara Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Off Zero. You can find me on Twitter. My username there is Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O -E -E underscore. My name is Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidy, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O -O, on most things. Tommy McClung, co-founder and CEO of Release. Uh, you can find me at Tommy underscore McClung on Twitter. That's usually where I hang out. Um, and our website is releasehub.com. Sweet. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.